everybody to First Principles Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to all subjects of environment, of politics, of culture, all the fun stuff. Today, we will be discussing the subject of nuclear power, nuclear energy. Uh, of course, uh, energy is uh, one of one of the fundamental requirements of life, and uh, we often take it for granted. And uh, you might expect that when you flick a switch, you'll get lights, you'll get a response, you'll get electricity. But that there's a long history that uh, had to come before in order to make that reality true. There are many forms of energy, of course, and uh, today we want to focus on nuclear because uh, we believe that there, or at least I'll speak for myself, that nuclear has a lot of potential and a lot of uh, benefits and value in society. And I believe that it is unfortunate that there are societies, uh, movements, or uh, e even political policies taking place that are moving people further away from exploring nuclear energy, uh, developing it further, refining it, and taking it to the next level. So I wanted to start this. Actually, before I, I, I do that, any, any thoughts before I, I jump into uh, it uh, real quick, Elliot? No, I would say you fairly spoke uh, for both of us. I have a, a pro-nuclear mindset as well. I have some criticisms, which we'll get into later as well. But uh, generally, my thoughts are in line with yours in terms that nuclear is something we need to consider more. And it is a shame that it is being demonized or, like you said, there is political pushback about its youth, uh, sorry, its usage in some cases. Um, but generally, I am in line with your thinking that nuclear is, is something we really should be considering as we move forward in terms of using it for energy purposes. Yes, and it has a very rich history, which I want to kind of partially get into right now. And I want to begin with a quick story that I found in the um, a brochure called the, the History of Nuclear Energy. It's from uh, energy.gov. I believe it's uh, an American-based um, uh, institution. So it begins like this, the discovery of fission. In 1934, physicist Enrico Fermi conducted experiments in Rome that showed neutrons could split many kinds of atoms. The result surprised even Fermi himself. When he bombarded uranium with neutrons, he did not get the elements he expected. The elements were much lighter than uranium. In fall of 1938, German scientists Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann fired neutrons from a source containing the elements radium and beryllium into uranium. They were surprised to find lighter elements such as barium in the leftover materials. These elements had about half the atomic mass of uranium. In previous experiments, the leftover materials were only slightly lighter than uranium. Hahn and Strassmann contacted Lise 
Meitner in Copenhagen before publicizing their discovery. She was an Austrian colleague who had been forced to flee Nazi Germany. She worked with Niels Bohr and her nephew Otto R. Frisch. Meitner and Frisch thought the barium and other light elements in the leftover material resulted from the uranium splitting or fissioning. However, when she added the atomic masses of the fission products, they did not total the uranium's total mass. Maintner used Einstein's theory to show the lost mass changed to energy. This proved fission occurred and confirmed Einstein's work. So, essentially, they fired a bunch of atoms of a certain type of element into the atoms of a different kind of element, they measured the results, found out something wasn't there, and essentially proved Einstein's infamous E equals MC squared energy converted into mass. So to me, it's a really fascinating story because it, demonstrates first and foremost the level of companionship and the level of interchange of information that had to take place back when this uh, nuclear discovery was first taking place where you had scientists from all over the world all over europe you had italians uh doing work with the swiss doing work with the germans americans and this is just one small excerpt um i read this other book that really went into the history of nuclear energy and there was so such a uh global effort from the scientific community and it's just truly uh, inspiring when when you read about that stuff because even though and it's very relatable to what's happening now that even though there was uh, issues there was of course wars between german scientists and um the 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 west the allies there was still a lot of interchange of information that was taking place for nuclear energy and during the war, this did kind of get hampered uh, and it was slowed down, but there was still, the, the scientific community was still strong and it, it's kind of like, you know, and uh, ties into this current situation with Russia and all that stuff that's happening that, you know, scientific um, communities and uh, just, just uh, all the things outside of politics, they're, they're really important to ensure that, um, that there, there's still connections between our people and the other people and there's not total alienation of the other the people aren't other so to speak mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and any thoughts on that yeah well i uh immediately thought of the book e uh, equals mc square which is a biography of the world's most famous equation and it's by david bondanis if i'm pronouncing his last name right and uh it might be the book that you're referring to. It is a fantastic book that outlines all the events leading up uh, to that equation and the proving of it and uh, implications of of it. And uh, it's a fascinating read. Um, and in terms of uh, in terms of collaboration uh, in the scientific community around the world, it really shows what is possible when. You allow uh, free scientific dialogue uh, from very intelligent, um, often out there, 
thinkers of uh, in the terms of science uh, uh, and uh, uh, around the world and what what can come of that and and it's of course going to be a shame if th- that is hampered um, well that's what I think it's a it's a it's a damn shame if, if that type of dialogue is hampered through uh, political shenanigans but um mm-hmm. definitely we are yeah you always want to encourage the transfer of information transfer of knowledge and that's and through open discourse towards a better understanding of the truth which is ultimately what uh, this is about the book uh, that i was referring to though i just touched on that was mm. more so for nuclear energy and nuclear power more broad scale and it focused on like the manhattan project uh which is when they were creating the nuclear bomb but so it wasn't so much focused on Einstein's uh, equations necessarily, but just like the history of nuclear uh, energy and power. And again, just how many little experiments, you know, just how many small little discoveries here and there all piled up and all mm. led to the accumulation of these amazing power plants that supply energy on scales which were never seen before and produced waste on a, on a reduced scale never seen before as well which we'll get into a bit later um but but again just for, for me that's what stood out was just like th- this amazing achievement of humankind and uh, how it's almost like to me the equivalent of going to space mm. and to that end i have a fear that as we have a society that is more apprehensive and more shaded um, when looking at nuclear energy, then uh, and we start moving away from it, we start using other forms of energy. Similarly to what's happened with the technology that we use to get to the moon, um, which apparently they, they don't have anymore, so they don't really have the know-how of how to get back to the moon because they just destroyed these files. I don't know, there's like some NASA uh, scientists talking about it. It's pretty funny when you actually t- take it in. But it does go to say that these are a specific sets of knowledge and understanding, and if they're not utilized, then they are forgotten. And if nuclear power isn't utilized for a sufficient amount of time then you have a generation that grows up without that knowledge then what if you come to a point that we realize oh wait this was actually a good idea and we want to increase our nuclear production and then we don't have the expertise we don't actually have the knowledge from the people to actually make it and that's a scenario that i've been thinking about recently where we're we're going to be royally screwed when we're faced with that uh uh, decision or that face with that consequence ahead of us just because of our desire to move away from nuclear. Wait, did we go to the moon? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I mean, we get into I, I, well. if Elon <laughs> says we went to the moon, we probably went to the moon. But right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, what you're describing is terrifying and it, and it's actually playing out in other areas of society where those uh, or individuals that have a, a, a knowledge base um, about how to do certain tasks are, 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 are dying or moving on to other things and, and that knowledge is being lost and you go, hang on a second, you know, people write things down, there's instructions. Yes, yes, there is, but 
having instructions and having people that are capable of executing those instructions and having people that have the, the know how to like navigate and what to look for in this vast knowledge of things we've written down is essential for us to be successful in in uh, producing. So whether it's, I mean, here's a really uh, more basic example. It would be something like there are no great masons anymore. So building things that are rock and stone and it becomes more niche. There's only a few people who know how to do it. But this same thing is happening for water treatment plants, for certain types of technology. When you have, you're not looking after the people that are maintaining uh, these systems and you bring in new people that are junior or intermediate and don't have the same knowledge base. Uh, when you uh, demonize a certain technology, people move away from it they stop being uh up to date in terms of their knowledge in it and this stuff can uh atrophy like a muscle atrophies and it takes just more effort to get back to uh uh, a society where people are capable and knowledgeable in these areas because we've allowed that to happen Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i like that word that atrophies and i think that's true like that knowledge just atrophies like how um you know, we still don't know how certain technologies were made, like the Great Pyramids and, you know, how all of the stones were brought to the location and how they were cut to such level of accuracy and precision and, and all this and that. And it's, um, yeah, we think that we're so great at documenting things now, but I feel like we're maybe we're overestimating that um, that side of our, our ourselves. Right, right. So I wanted to talk about our perceptions of nuclear and what has shaped our perceptions of nuclear what are these kind of unconscious biases so thinking about what shapes nuclear i think about disasters i think about pop culture uh, when you hear the term nuclear you know what is it that you think about some people might think about chernobyl uh, Fukushima, these disasters, these great disasters. They may think about the Manhattan Project, like you, you said earlier. They may think about the bombs um, that were dropped on the Japanese cities of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they, you know, right now people might be thinking of uh, mutually assured destruction, the whole concept of you got nukes, I got nukes, you don't launch your nukes because I'll launch my nukes and then we're all fucked type thing, right? Um that that is in everybody's head you might think about homer simpson who was a safety inspector at the springfield nuclear plant and he was not the most capable man and you might think about flying pieces of glowing green rods you know uh you might think about the fish that was in the pond with the three eyes and mutated fish um you might think of the countless superheroes in the marvel universe that uh, gain their powers through exposure to radiation, through mutation. You might think about uh, the recent um, uh, TV series. HBO did a TV series on Chernobyl, which talks about those events. You are thinking about nuclear, and you probably right away relate it to disaster, to war, to... Uh, unnatural mutation to death there's a negative sense that underlines the way you think about it and there is often imagery that you associate with nuclear whether it's that glowing rod green rod uh, of metal or uh, a cooling tower 
and and you see these images and it elicits a response and because of the negative connotations you see nuclear it's usually a, a response of shock uh, of fear of concern and here's a perfect example of it think about what just happened in the winter olympics that ski jump that was built in beijing china <laughs> yeah you're right man-made ski jump everybody's talking about these cooling towers everybody's like oh look at that nuclear plant well the, the fact of the matter that was not a nuclear plant those were cooling towers cooling towers on an old uh steel mill i think uh, but right away and they were it was they were not active uh, there was no nuclear you know, threat here, but it was a, you, you, you listen to the shocking response across social media about this articles are written about this. Um, and people are like, you know, is it safe? Like what's going on here? And, uh, you know, it just goes to show how mm. programmed in some ways we are to, uh, uh, you know some of the negative sides of nuclear and this perception parts of it are justified and parts of it are not but overwhelmingly uh i think people unconsciously have these biases uh against nuclear because they don't understand fully how they've uh come to obtain their thinking on it and i want to just highlight it is you've likely come to think about nuclear through its disasters through its use in war and through pop culture which hasn't always been uh accurate in its depictions of what nuclear is um right so you're saying the messaging has been poor the comms the nuclear comms has not been the best. The PR for nuclear has not been great. <laughs> they're scrambling. <laughs> they're, they're they're like like freaking um, uh, Tylenol after their huge conspiracy in the '90s or something, where like people got um, poisoned with like you know drinking Tylenol. Anyways, poor example for an analogy, but yeah, they're scrambling to get their PR back on track. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. Okay. Yeah, and, yeah, totally. And, it, and it's often hard to get rid of these ideas, um, these negative ideas, because we're th we're surrounded by them. And I, you know, uh, think what we need to also discuss is how nuclear uh, or uh, not just nuclear, but um, radiation is used. Uh, in our day-to-day -day lives for outside of energy for um, positive outcomes or useful outcomes uh, they come with some risk uh, which is always the case when you're dealing with radioactive material but uh, there's a you know of course there's a number of medical devices uh, x-ray machines that have allowed us to diagnose um, diseases and cancers uh, preemptively uh, there's the use of it in uh, engineering for uh, determining the density of um, soils after compaction which allows you to uh, build safe structures safe highways that are not going to shift on you um, unexpectedly the nuclear is used all around us in less public ways that and and in that way, I think uh, we should we should consider that the use of it as a nuclear energy is not as 
I want to say not as risky as we might be led to believe. Right. So essentially, we need to improve, again, the messaging, improve how we understand um, this subject because it's been really poorly discussed. It's been really poorly communicated. And just thinking about it, I don't know if this is true or not, but do you think that that's partially a just a, as a result of some of the events that have happened or do you think that it's more of a considered effort i think there are definitely and you can find them uh organizations that are very critical of it unjustly critical of it um but i think it just comes about more naturally it just uh you know the the stuff of of marvel comics you know it was a the phenomena of having a substance that is invisible and then it bombards you and it could change your DNA and that DNA change could lead to mutations. That was fantastical. You know, it was just something fun to write about. Um, and then, of course, the the disasters um, are scary, so they get into the news and uh, propagated. And then something like the dropping of the bombs and that whole race to develop nuclear weapons was such a critical point in changing the way we fight wars in terms of uh, that, you know, of course that's going to stand out. Of course that's going to be a place in history that everybody remembers. So it's, it's you know, people talk about some of the, f what are the, what are the most important or the most cutting edge technologies that are going to shape the next 100, 200 years? And there's people that say nuclear is one of them and bioengineering is another one of them, right? And then AI and there's a whole list. But, uh, you know, nuclear will always have its beginnings that are tied to these more tragic events. So, yeah, they definitely start off on a rougher foot. Mm -hmm. or, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, to that end, I think it's worth, as we discussed, changing some of the messaging around uh, nuclear and... I think changing that perception and I mean, I don't, I don't know how much this podcast is going to help with, with that, but at least we'll try give it a crack at it. So, um, it's well, before, funny. Hold on. Are you yeah. going to go, uh, talk about safety? Yeah. I was going to start going into yeah some numbers and stuff. Can I just quickly roll out a quick intro on safety? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my background, I should tell everyone is, uh, not in any, uh, or in, not in any shape or form related to nuclear energy. However, uh, I was trained up on a Troxler, which is a nuclear energy gauge. It's uh, a gauge used to measure the density of soils after compaction. And it, uh, you know, for all intensive purposes, is a box, not very big. You put it on the ground. Uh, neutrons are fired out of the bottom of it. These neutrons go in the ground. They are slowed by interactions with the soil particles. When they come back up to the sen sensor, those slow par slowed particles are measured and it's able to spit out uh, the density of, of the ground. Uh, used all the time for road constructions, for setting up bases, uh, for uh, buildings. Uh, but, you know, because you're dealing with... Uh, uh, a, 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 
a nuclear substance, you need to know how to safely um, use these machines, how to store them uh, securely, uh, how to transport them. There's all these laws and regulations about transportation, right? So my introduction to nuclear was through my training on on um, on the Troxler. So it is limited, but let me let me give it a stab at what I what I understand. So. In a broad sense, there are two types of uh, radiation. There's ionizing radiation and there's non-ionizing radiation. And ionizing radiation is when you have the ability through the radiation to knock an electron um, uh, out from an atom. So, you, for example, if you had a, a gamma ray coming in, it can knock out uh, of out of orbit an electron on tissue on a substance. And, and this can have a cascade of effect. And then there are non-ionizing radiation. And when you think of radiation as such as microwaves to heat your food, this starts to vibrate the water molecules very quickly, um, but doesn't knock electrons out of their orbit and you have ultraviolet light. These are, these are forms of non-ionizing um, radiation. Um, so when we talk about ionizing radiation, which is the more dangerous uh, or potentially more dangerous form of it, depending on the dosage. Uh, you have um, you have subatomic particles, and you have uh, electromagnetic waves. So you have X rays, gamma rays, uh, beta particles, alpha particles, neutrons, um, and this whole uh, you know th this whole idea of, of safety is around how much of this radiation do you get exposed to. And what is your dosage, and what tissues are you? What tissues are being exposed to the dosage? Because different tissues uh, have a uh, react worse to uh, radiation exposure than others. So there's all these weighting factors in terms of health. But there is this one unit which uh, our listeners might know of, which is the uh, sievert. And um, so sieverts are used to to measure uh, do uh, radiation dosage. Um, and I don't know how many people know this, but there's actually background radiation that comes from natural sources that we're exposed to all the time. So we're based out of Ontario. We receive around three millisieverts a year of radiation, and it comes from all sorts of things. Um, there are some from basements, uh, which get exposure to radon. Uh, there's rocks that uh, expose it. There's cosmic um, um, uh, contribute contributions. There's man-made contributions, um, but I just want to point out that there is a natural, okay, occurring radioactive uh, material that we are exposed to. And now, natural doesn't mean it's healthy for you. <laughs> you could still be exposed to unhealthy amounts of radiation from a natural source, but they exist. Um, and I think that's good to understand. Uh, you know, uh, I he heard this recently that coal actually uh, releases more radiation during normal operation than does nuclear because coal contains trace amounts of naturally occurring radioactive elements. And though, you know, when you have a normal operation of a nuclear plant, there is shielding and everything in fact that prevents it. But you know, there is some radioactive um, uh, uh, occurrence that comes from coal, and coal has actually killed more people than nuclear has. 
but we'll get into that a bit later for other reasons. The last thing I just wanted to say is um, two things about dosage. So we, I talked earlier about uh, exposure of uh, radiation from machines like x-ray machines. So if you were to go um, get a chest x-ray, you would be exposed to 0.06 millisieverts, okay? Uh, if you go get uh, a bone scan, you get dosed with a little bit more, 4.6 millisieverts. And in general, this is what scientists and the health community that have studied this have come to conclude roughly these numbers are you know take them uh with a grain of salt because there are shifting ideas on this but here's a in a general sense when we talk about sieverts and i just described point a fraction of a sievert and a few sieverts but the thinking is that if you're exposed to zero to 250 millisieverts there is no effect you are you will have complete recovery there's no negative effect that we've been able to detect. If you are um, exposed to 250 to 1,000 sieverts, you might have slight blood changes, fluctuations in red and white blood cell counts, delays effect, but there's a good chance of recovery quite quickly. Uh, as you go up to 1,200, you might see nausea, fatigue, uh, but you will recover within days. 2,000 to 3,000, you may get vo the vomiting, you might have uh, a few weeks of nausea, and these are not small things, diarrhea, sore throat, but there is a recovery within three months. They typically see in individuals, if you go to 3,000 to 6,000, then you start getting into the areas of, you might 50% of people die exposed to these amounts. Um, over 6,000 uh, millisieverts, um, probably probability of death is considered 100%. So why am I saying this? Because it sounds scary. It's, it's, under, it's good to understand that it's it's all about dosage. There, yes, there is danger, dangerous radiation. Radiation is a catch-all term. There are t forms of radiation that have very little, no health effects. There are some ionizing types of radiation that have health effects, but it depends how much your dosage to you're, you're exposed to. And today, there are a lot of reactors that are being built safely that know how to contain radioactive material and think about this there are subs that use reactors so not only are these people that run these subs under hundreds of feet of water <laughs> in a metal tank with a completely artificial atmosphere and, and air but they're being powered by nuclear energy you know and there are operators that are quite okay with doing this because they understand what the risk is um, when these machines work properly, it's very low. Right, right. right. And um, in terms of some of the, the numbers, um, I think that's really interesting for me where um, you look at how does nuclear stack up with other um, forms of energy. So when it comes to like fossil fuels or even when it comes to more renewable types of energies, what, what is the... Um, you know, something like what is the death rate um, or what is the greenhouse gas emissions uh, produced? And I think that, I think it's funny because we have like this this shift away from nuclear because 
as you discussed, we have this perception that it's uh, something scary, something to be feared. We have this conditioning that it's something that um, maybe poses a lot of risk to us. But when you actually look at the numbers, um, nuclear energy, we there's some um, data from our world and data. And uh, essentially, it goes over the safest sources of energy and nuclear power is at about 0.02 deaths. Um, and, and this is uh, measured as deaths per a terawatt hour of energy production. So that's the baseline that they used. Hmm. And uh, nuclear energy, sorry, the 0.02 is for hydropower. It, nuclear energy is 0.07, hmm. wind is 0.04, solar is 0.02. So they're all more, nuclear is a bit more, but they're all more or less like in the same ballpark. But then when you get into other stuff like biomass, you have like 4.6, you have natural gas, 2.8. Natu- so natural gas is actually less than biomass. <laughs> then you have oil and coal, that's where it goes up to more 18 and 24.6. So that's where you really go up. But when again, going back to this idea of uh, safety and deaths, we associate the uh, the use of nuclear with uh, more deaths. And um, I don't know, just this perception of more of higher mortality, but yet the numbers point to a different reality. And then similarly, when it comes to this whole notion of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions, you also see how nuclear energy, it actually releases three tons. And this is, again, um, per, per gigawatt hour of electricity. Uh, produced so you're you're generating three tons versus wind which is four solar five so it's actually less <laughs> nuclear would be less and that's something that nobody's really talking about in terms of the um, clean energy in terms of the clean or, or from the reduction of carbon dioxide side of things and it's really Uh, it's really strange to me. It's really, um, I I don't know. That's where I go back to my previous question of, is there a concerted effort to demonize nuclear? Because when you look at the numbers, it seems like there should be some sort of push for it. It seems like it's the, again, I go back to the idea that it's like this huge achievement of humankind and like we shouldn't be running away from it, but we should be running towards it and developing it and making it uh, fit and ready for the 21st century. And yet it, it seems like we're not doing that. Um, now, uh, just a question there. So it was uh, three tons uh, per unit of energy or something like that, right? For nuclear. Uh, yeah, so the unit is measured in emissions of CO2 equivalents per gigawatt hour of electricity over the life cycle of the power plants. Right, right. Yeah, and, and this is something I, I like that metric because for all renewables, whether it's nu- or, uh, nuclear, wind, uh, solar, is there is also a misconception that these things are completely CO2 free in terms of their what they produce. That's, mm-hmm. This is not true. They are much lower. Um, and again, we have criticisms about the CO2 metric as the end-all be-all, of course. Uh, if you've listened to any of our episodes, you would know this. But um, yeah, it's not, uh, none of these things are going to be CO2 f- free completely, uh, but they are uh, orders of magnitude less in some cases than uh, uh 
alternative forms of energy production out there. Right. So, uh, and when you look at those uh, other forms of energy, you have things such as fossil fuels, which apparently some study in 2018, um, it came to this number of 8.7 million deaths globally uh, due to fossil fuels, an average of more than 30% of deaths in adults age 14 and over in Eastern Asia are attributed to pollution from fossil fuels. So Eastern Asia seems to really be struggling the most with this. And um, you have that then Europe, uh, Canada follows, USA is uh, less than that, actually. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's really interesting. And there's this article that says that, uh, countries with the most, uh, pro prodigious consumption of fossil fuels, uh, to power factories, homes, and vehicles are suffering the highest death tolls with the study finding more than one in 10 deaths in both us and Europe were caused by the resulting pollution, along with nearly a third of deaths in Eastern Asia, which includes China, uh, death rates in South America and Africa were significantly lower. And, uh, a lot of this is due to, um, uh, PM, uh, particulate matter 2.5, right? Mm. So this is something that's really fine, gets into your lungs, and once it's there, it's kind of almost permanent. It's really hard to get out. So there's been a lot of linkages to the air pollution and what that means in terms of people's health, which I think is really important to, to discuss. And um, also the fact that, that we do have technologies to address these these uh, concerns. For example, uh, particulate matters and various exhaust that comes from uh, these, these combustion processes, we have catalytic converters at the exhaust to capture the fumes and um, essentially filter out some of the bad exhaust. So what I didn't like about this study was that it didn't really break down like um, was were the deaths more attributed to the power in terms of the power generation, or was it more so for the cars and the transportation side of things? So mm. not really clear on that side, which um, I think is important because when, um, again, I go back to the idea of like centralized pollution versus decentralized pollution. Right. And if you have a decentralized via really dirty cars, then that becomes probably the main source of your problem because you have people directly breathing in that air, breathing in that low quality air. Um, and I think uh, I, there was this, this other article that I found, which <laughs> was really I think I, I want to just put this whole conversation into an interesting perspective because when we're talking about deaths at per um, power plant, per energy source, we can really zero in on these things that if you take a different uh, perspective, if you took a different approach, you might actually think that it doesn't make sense and like the whole conversation is useless and let me let okay. me let, let me explain this with this interesting uh, observation right so essentially this article stated that ultimately the data reinforced much of what researchers already suspected particularly on a global scale it did offer however quantitative information in different parts of the world teasing out which sources are to blame for severe pollutions in different areas so uh, th this goes back to a comprehensive evaluation of uh, source sector fuel contributions to the PM 2.5 disease burden analyzed across over 200 countries. So if it found that, uh, for instance, that cook stoves and home heating 
are still responsible for the release of particulate matter in many regions throughout Asia, and energy generation remains a large polluter in the global scale. So, and this is from an article that's titled, New Research Finds 1 Million Deaths in 2017 Attributed to Fossil Fuels Combustion. Um, so, okay, we have a million deaths due to fossil fuel combustion. The point that I want to make, though, is that this fossil fuel uh, combustion is taking place in order to cook food so you can eat and live. Or this fossil fuel consumption is being done so you can heat your home and live. Right. So... I go back to what I said that we need to take a different look and a different approach when we're actually analyzing these types of numbers and and zoning in on, oh, which source of energy, which source of power actually leads to the most uh, deaths, Um, you know, oh, well, this has the most pollution. So, you know, there's more um, exhaust fumes, people are breathing in, so therefore more deaths, so this is like more dangerous. Well... Okay, true. But also, if these people didn't have this energy, they would freeze to death. If these people didn't have this energy, they would they would uh, starve to death because they wouldn't be able to cook their food properly. You see what I'm you see where I'm going with this? Yes, yes, exactly. And I I want to say two things about it. First, that uh, you have to be careful when we talk about death from fossil fuels as well, because they're talking about existing. Uh, uses of fossil fuel like existing power plants that do not have uh, a level of uh, scrub like a scrubber or something that protects from these emissions right so that needs to be considered it's not just simply fossil fuels equals death it's the way the fossil fuels are burned and the emissions that are allowed to escape that result in these death and then the other thing that is worth pointing out is it's not you know uh we need energy, like you said, to exist, to survive, whether it's eating your home, cooking food, what have you. Uh, it's not just a simple thing to say, put in a nuclear plant. As we discussed at the beginning, it takes a very specific type of knowledge to do that successfully and run that safely, uh, not even taking into consideration expense, e- economics of it. So it's and I mean, I don't think we really need to say this to our listeners at this point, but it's not as simple as saying out with the dirty fossil fuel and replace it immediately with some nuclear. That's not possible and not taught possible in a sense in, a, in the most simplest form. Um, can I read something that uh, Bjorn Lundberg said that kind of talks about this whole thing we've just been talking about? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay, so he says, Most global energy is not electricity. The world's largest renewable energy source is also its oldest, bioenergy. Bioenergy is mostly just a fancy way of saying burning wood, which provides 60% of all renewable energy and is especially problematic in poor countries where it leads to excessive indoor air pollution and deforestation. This has been repeatedly documented in scientific literature. Remember, coal releases more radiation during normal operation than does nuclear because coal contains trace elements of naturally occurring radioactive elements, which I've 
mentioned earlier. Even in great disasters like Chernobyl and Fukushima are expected to result in less than 4,800 deaths by the World Health Organization. Let me repeat that again. Even great disasters like Chernobyl and Fukushima are expected to re result in less than 4,800 deaths by the World Health Organization and others, or fewer deaths than which are fewer deaths than caused by coal fire plants in four days. Okay, so I really sometimes have a problem with, um, or, or uh, I shouldn't say I have a problem, but I know that deaths are uh, a metric for comparing things that are uh, hard to uh, think about because whether you're like, oh, less have died, but there's still people dying, right, of these things. But, you know, this is this is a metric that is being used to compare by, and uh, it is, uh, in a sense, a, a very clear-cut um metric in terms of really saying are we you know what are we, we doing here in terms of, of, of preserving life uh, human life so um but he goes on to say bjorn goes on to say that the problem he sees with uh, even though he's pro-nuclear and he uses pro-hydrogen as well is that these thing these technologies are still too expensive so he sees the uh, the um, growth, the enlargement of these uh, technologies on the world stage being prohibited still by cost. And I think that is something we um, have talked about before uh, on this podcast, but it's always something you have to keep in mind. Uh, if you're a poor country and you uh, have a lot of trees, right? you're going to burn biomass. If you're a poor country and you have a neighbor who's producing lots of coal and can sell it to you, you're gonna buy coal because it, you know how to use it, it's cheaper, it works. So, um, you know. But I would say, how is it more expensive? Because we, we built them in the 70s 80s and how's it more like relative to what and like for what purpose like right you know and that's something i actually don't know a whole lot about but uh part of the expense i must imagine comes from the bureaucracy from the uh yeah. level of safety and red tape around um producing enriching uranium um you know of course the plants are expensive in themselves uh for you know the technology you have to put into them uh but uh i think a, there's a, certainly a lot of expense that comes from the the safety side and and uh and that can be excessive or bloated at least due to um regulations and such in in certain countries that may be more than what you need to produce a safe a safe product but i'm only speculating here yeah, it just it seems like it's um, something that I hear uh, thrown out a lot. And obviously, they do have a cost associated to them. But it's like, so does everything. It's like, yeah, how much 
money would you need to spend for like an equivalent amount of power from a, an alternative energy source you know like that would be an interesting study you know so if you wanted to get like a gigawatt of or like a um a however a gigawatt like um nuclear power plant like a you know a 20 gigawatt nuclear power plant or whatever if you were to get the equivalent via solar or whatever like what, what would that look like in essence what would it look like now and what would it look like in 10 years right with the changing yeah. in fuel costs and yeah it's that's exactly right i you know it's the the cost is you know an obstacle until it's not yeah <laughs> you know um but you have no choice yeah yeah and uh i think that's uh like the, the death thing is so interesting because you know we're so concerned about safety and preserving lives and obviously after the fukushima thing there was like a big push in europe in germany to get rid of the nuclear power plants which i actually found this article that um kind of discussed this thing mm. and it said that the switch from nuclear power to fossil fuel fire production resulted in substantial increases in global and local air pollution emissions a key reason for the increased air pollution was that the lost nuclear production was replaced by electricity produce production from coal and gas fired sources in germany as well as electricity imports from surrounding countries, Russia. The study concluded that the phase-out resulted in more than 1,100 additional deaths per year due to excess mortality from the consequences of increased air pollution. Since 2011, that totals more than 10,000 deaths, far more than all deaths attributed to nuclear power in history. <laughs> Bonkers. When, I think this is the perfect example of when the cure is worse than the disease, mm. right? Yeah. Because, okay, we had this tragic event, of course, with the Fukushima reactors, with the spillage and all the chaos and all the carnage that was caused due to that. And then, okay, let's look at our options. Well, nuclear is bad. Let's get rid of it. Cool. Lo and behold, it's actually led to far more deaths than that than those nuclear power plants ever would have so it really it's just really fascinating how we can make these decisions and think that we're, we're doing something good but in hindsight you realize like wait that was totally the wrong thing to do and it, it's just like a, a really funny lesson with this whole nuclear conversation and what it means for the future of energy production and um i think uh, an another thing that i found funny doing this research was that um essentially when you're looking at air pollution and, and fossil fuels right um essentially there's many studies that look at the kind of as i mentioned the the mortality and its distribution throughout different parts of the world and one thing that I found that was interesting was that the mortality from air pollution dominate, was dominated in East Asia, right? So 35% and then 32% in South Asia. So um, followed by Africa, 11%. Europe was 9%, right? So we're looking at, so this is, this, this is what, I, again, meta-analysis. Where do we get, in, in the media, here's a question for you, in the media, where do we see the most praise for their um, greenification of their electrical grid? I'll put it that way. Well, we've heard about Germany. We've heard about hmm, a, 
kind of Scandinavian countries, uh, um, China. The answer I was looking for is China. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> wait, wait, uh, wait. I guess wait. I, that, that, that disproves my theory. Anyways, but wait. <laughs> no, you, your premise though was where did they get the most praise? Yes. For the greenification. Yes. Yes. Okay. The thing about China's praise, and it yes, it does get praise. Is it also gets met with uh, criticism? And I, I have to say, I definitely read both the the critics and the praisers of it more often so i do not because i yeah don't uh to see both sides of it so it doesn't pop to mind but it is definitely being praised like at in, time. in yeah. mainstream media sources when was a lot like i can't think of the last time that i i heard of china being criticized for their um energy production oh i've heard uh i mean I've heard CNN criticize them about uh, coal. And even in the article I read about from CTV, uh, which is a Canadian um, broadcaster, news broadcaster, they actually pulled from CNN. And at their end, they were uh, critical of, um, you know, they, they, you know, they talked about, oh, you know, it's not it, those cooling towers behind the ski hill aren't nuclear. They're to do with the steel mill. But that steel mill wasn't actually shut down. Um it was just moved to another part of China, and then they went on yada yada about the um, bad air quality, and uh, there was some criticism in there. So it's it's out there. I have to say it is out mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Okay. But like it sounds like there was like more like defensive. They're like trying to cover up for them if when it comes to that specific incident at the Olympics. Maybe. Um, yeah. But irrespective of the criticism. I go back to the praise where it gets the most praise and that praise is undoubtedly with China. Right. And what I would say is that we don't hear nearly as much as, um, certain facts such as, you know, mortality from air pollution is dominated in East Asia, in South Asia. And, um, when it comes to these global efforts that are put forward in order to, do something about climate change in order to improve the living quality of the of the planet and go towards sustainable growth whatever the hell that means right yeah most of the emphasis is put on the west to make the change right but when you look at data such as this where you have deaths attributed uh, in East Asia, 35%. South Asia, 32%. Africa, 11%. Europe, 9%. So to me, that sounds like Europe is doing okay relative <laughs> to everybody else. Yeah. Europe, yeah. Uh, never mind the US. US is even less than Europe. Well, so. And this is the, in a sense, the, uh, the big dirty secret. In a, so let me uh, lay out my thoughts on, on, on China. So they get praise. I think a lot of the praise comes from uh, PR within the country, from their own government, in order to offset criticism uh, by others. So you have a PR mechanism there. Then you have the reality that, yes, they consume the most coal, but they are the greatest manufacturer of goods in many sense, and including the manufacturing of green technologies like solar panels. They're responsible for bringing down solar panel costs. So there is this kind of weird situation where you don't want to be too critical 
you know, it must be people in the West that realize they can't be too critical of China uh, and their manufacturing the way they do energy, um, given what they provide back to people. So there's always the, I think people's, uh, I think the criticism is censored in a sense through uh, the ties that the West, Canada, U.S. have with China in terms of what they rely on them for. Um, and I think that a lot of the praise uh, stems from uh, within China and through their government uh, for, for in terms of praising them for their green changes they're making. And yet, yet, like you said, if you look at the numbers, the, the places that really need to be making vast improvements are places like china <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah. So yeah i mean there is definitely like a pr campaign that they have succeeded in because it's it's definitely from my perspective not something that's highlighted um to a to a high degree so again i, I make the case that when we look at the global net contributors of uh, of carbon dioxide number one or greenhouse gases and then the deaths in terms of the impact that that's actually happening and then in terms of the changes that are being stipulated on people it just shows to me how there's a a dis an asymmetrical relationship mm. since you have a bulk of the issues happening in asia in east asia south asia and that's where you would say, okay, this is probably where you would need the most change. But meanwhile, you have other countries that are like doing okay, relatively speaking, and they're trying to like push this. Okay, this we need to change our energy so that you know we save the planet. But meanwhile, like, what does that mean? Are we trying to save people? Because if we do, then maybe this doesn't make sense to do that here. It makes sense to do that like in this other part of the the planet. And then at the same time, I go back to my other thing where hey, it's better to give these people energy than not. And if that energy has to come from coal, if it has to come from oil, natural gas, whatever, then biofuel, then that's still better than, than, than not, not having energy at all. Yeah. Right. And you're going to actually save more lives, even if those have externalities of deaths associated with them, because there's uh, a life savings associated with being able to heat your home, being able to cook properly having a solid supply of uh, energy and heat for your home um, and everything that comes along with that like clean water through a treatment plant through plumbing that's not possible without power exactly 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 and he, i hear interesting little study experiment i just googled china and energy and <laughs> google let's see what google g gave us uh, first article uh, China's energy sector is moving into a new direction following the president's call for energy revolution, the fight against pollution. That's from the IEA. Second article. Coal remains the foundation of Chinese energy system covering close to 70% to country's primary energy needs, 70% uh, of the country's primary energy needs and representing 80% of whatever. Um, that's wiki. So that's Wikipedia. But and then it goes into by the end of 2019, China installed capacity for renewable energy was about 795. While <laughs> right, so th th they're quick to 
um, go towards, again, like trying to showcase the, the positive. Oh, but by the end of 2019, China's installed capacity for renewable energy was about 795. Cool, cool. While coal power capacity was 1040 gigawatts. Hmm, I'm highly suspect of those numbers. Um, next article, uh, China energy country profile, our world in data, renewable electricity. Here is the sum of hydropower, wind, solar, geothermal, modern biomass, and wave tidal power. So that one, so, th those ones are pretty. Um, uh, well, they don't say much in 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 either directions. In fact, you would have to click on the article to uh, to see the numbers. Uh, but what I would, I'm curious. Could no, you just no, you, no, 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 no. It's it's quite clearly, or maybe that's maybe I'm see, I'm reading it differently, but. The I fact mean, that the, the fact, the fact that they're, they're talking it. about renewables exactly. there is in itself already yeah. a bias, right? Yeah. Can you just click on the news? Let's see some headlines. Uh, the news. So at the very very top, there's like all. Uh, go to the very oh, top of Google, right, and then right. and the news. Let's just read a few of those. Uh, Ukraine war sharpens China's energy priorities as prices spike. Oh, that's going to be by yeah. Higher this. commodity prices are crashing over China's economy after Russia's. Da -da -da, okay, China's clean energy conundrum. China's clean energy conundrum. Mm. Climate change looms over China's population resources. Um, ba -ba -ba, hand picked. We handpicked and explained the most important climate and energy stories from China. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, of course, right now, uh, the events in uh, Ukraine and Russia are going to uh, change those headlines. But, um, yeah, no, I, I mean, there, there, without a doubt, there is some truth to your assertion about that, that bias, of course. I, I agree with that. I wanted to say something, though, about um, Germany closing down their nuclear plant, pant, ugh, nuclear pants. Yeah, that's the word, right? Nuclear plants? Um, nuclear plants um, in light of Fukushima. Right. So when I was listening to Elon on the Lex Freeman podcast, uh, Elon was talking, he's pretty pro-nuclear. Uh, when Fukushima happened, he went over and donated some solar panels uh he made an effort he said to eat the vegetables that were grown in japan near um uh, where the event happened and he was saying he was critical of the cleanup standards he he, he believed that they the reason it became so expensive the cleanup efforts was that they had a very strict um standard to which they want to reduce the the radiation if I understand correctly, and again, I, I'm no expert in this, so uh, I don't know uh, what to make of this. It could be the case that you do want stricter uh, uh, cleanup than than less uh, strict ones. And but he was saying he, he okay, so he was saying that he was pro nuclear, and he and 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 Elon was saying nuclear plants. One of the things that you do to um, as we move into the future is d do a risk assessment about where you position these plants. You do not want these plants in areas where there can be the case of a natural disaster, whether it be uh, a hurricane, a tsunami, uh, near a fault line. When you have places that are uh, more stable and more or less likely to experience a natural disaster, these are the places where 
you place the nuclear plants. Yes, they're still susceptible to um, human destruction through uh, war. Somebody targets, targets it with a missile or they don't mean to target with a missile and a missile hits it. There's still all, you know, these cases the same way when you're out in the field or when I'm out in the field and, and there's a Troxler and, oh, uh, it's it's doing a reading and, and a guy in a, a excavator accidentally runs over it. Um, freak, accident, freak accidents happen. Then what happens after that? You pre-establish what you're going to do if that happens. So for the Troxler, it's like, okay, best action. People step away a certain distance. Guys come in, place a certain amount of... Um, uh, material over uh, over the unit to reduce radiation that could be coming out of it. You get you know meters in. These same type of protocols um, are established for nuclear plants. And the reality is, which we wanted to come to, I think eventually in the, in this episode, is talking about small scale nuclear. So there is you know uh, larger threat potential or danger that is associated with these big nuclear plants that were built 50 years ago. But safety uh, technology has improved over the last 50 years uh, in terms of being able to shut these things down. And in some cases, you don't need to build them as big, which are then uh, the radius of influence if something, God forbid, goes wrong with them is less. Um these things need to be keep kept in mind. And it's just like what the circumstances in Fukushima with it being on an island uh, close to the water and, and it's, it's so different than Germany, right? Right. So why, why are you making policy changes in a, such a different circumstance? It would be my question. Like what really is driving that? It's the knee-jerk reaction. It's right. like that knee-jerk emotional reaction, not really well thought out. Again, you look at those numbers where there's tens of thousands of people that have died due to that transition. And then not to mention the other political and geopolitical uh, things unfolding in that area where it's led to... so. Uh, it's, it's just crazy how everything has just been connected, how this removal of nuclear power has led to Germany becoming more reliant on Russian imports of energy, right? So they're getting their, so even though they've put so much investment in solar, so much investment in wind, uh, more than half, right? The majority of their power is still being imported from Russia. And guess what? Russia is not doing it clean. They're doing it via oil and natural gas. That's their primary natural resource. So they, so now because of all the geopolitical situation that's happening and unfolding with the war with Russia, Ukraine, and then Germany and Europe and and the stance that they've taken kind of against Russia, well, it's put them in a difficult situation where they're trying to put sanctions and push the Russian um, the, the Russian government from uh, taking further actions in Ukraine. But because Putin knows that Germany and Europe is reliant on Russian oil and natural gas, that they ultimately have the upper hand. And because, again, I go back to energy. It's fundamental. It's, it's the uh, core 
baseline underlying thing that we all need in order to essentially pr proceed in the modern societies that we've carved for ourselves so this again this this foolish short-sighted vision of nuclear as bad has led to this dependence on russian oil which then has led to a lack of self-sustainment from your own capacities with your own uh, energy sources and now you're reliant on a potential enemy for your energy supply and you are in this catch-22 where you're trying to establish some sort of deterrence some sort of hindrance from the russians from taking further action yet you know that the biggest thing that contributes to their economy which is oil and natural gas you can't really touch too much even though the germans have done so but they can only do it so much the americans haven't followed suit because if they do then their gas prices will increase and they're gonna uh, lose confidence from their public so it's just created so much issue this demonization of nuclear and it's it's led to almost like um a reversion uh, i hesitate to use the word but almost a retardation because it's literally the, the meaning of the word right you're Slow. moving back you're slowing down the progress and you're essentially uh, taking again i go back to the, the first story that i that we opened up this podcast with you're taking so much so many years of research and development and growth and interchange where we were we literally have it's it's so crazy where we're literally like playing around with atoms and like throwing atoms at each other and all of a sudden we were realizing that mass and energy are interchangeable. It's like, whoa, it's like some crazy discoveries. It's like some of the most powerful discoveries in the history of humankind. Like, I don't, I can't think of any, like many more important discoveries than that. And yet we want to turn our backs to this and we want to neglect it and say, no, we're not interested in nuclear. Like what? Like, it's just it's, like, as a, it's just, yeah, just, frustrates the hell out of me if you it's can't tell so, it, no, it's backwards it just seems so backwards right uh and 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 to top it off to top it off take this in the worldwide supply of uranium is diverse coming primarily from places like kazakhstan canada australia in the u.s uranium is mined in the uh western states so we could have energy independence via our own access to mines. By we, I mean Western countries such as Canada, Australia, U.S. So we don't have to be dependent on our potential geopolitical foes. That's like, you know, to add insult right. to injury. Like right. We have access to the mines to get the raw materials for the power plants. Yeah, Jeez. right. Yeah, I mean... It's fine and dandy to rely on your neighbor when you're friends with your neighbor. Yeah. When that friendship falls out, things become an issue. Things start to become an issue, and, and actually, you bring up a good point there about where you f can find uranium. Uh, we haven't really discussed this, but you know, enriching uranium is fundamental to nuclear power, and uh, you need to mine that uranium. So you are. Uh, you would ne you need to have a uranium source in your country to use nuclear to be independent. And if you don't, you will need to trade. Um, you much like lithium uh, for battery storage. Where do you get lithium from? It requires mining in different countries and um, 
transport, similar to natural gas, similar to uh, fossil fuels in the terms of oil and gas. Um, you, there's this trade, but but yeah, that, that that becomes a key point is you can only use nuclear uh, for energy security in the most secure way. <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying that, <laughs> uh, if you have a source of, of uranium in, in your own country, right? That is, Or with a friend. Or with a friend. From yeah. an ally. Yeah. If, if it's all coming from, again, somewhere where it's a bit sketchy, then you might be uh, shit out of luck, as they say. Yeah, yeah. I uh, want to briefly touch on uh, small nuclear reactors. Okay. Um, also known as SMRs or micro-reactors. So, uh, one of the, the guys I've been following on this topic is, uh, Rob Adams, and he is an atomic energy expert, expert with small nuclear plants. Uh, and he, um, is pro small nuclear reactors, of course, and his, past experience is as a former submarine engineer officer uh, and he's the founder of Adams Atomic Energy Engines Inc. Um, and what I like about him is in his intro on small nuclear reactors, he said this, let me start by dispelling the notion that I think small modular manufacture, manufactured nuclear power systems often called SMRs or microreactors are the be-all and end-all solution to anything, including climate change or energy security. Though, though not the solution, they have the potential to be a crucial, uniquely capable part of a fully integrated zero-emission climate-solving grid. The best of the breed build on le- on the breast. Sorry, the best of the breed build on the lessons from aircraft manufacturing, submarine construction, electric vehicles, wind and solar, and even computers. They are, they are, um, they rely on six decades worth of experience. So right away, he is realistic in my mind. He's saying, listen, it's not just about everything going to nuclear. He is, understands uh, that's not going to happen and that's not even possible, but he's saying, listen, they are part of the solution. You need to allow these things to um, come to be. And he also um, is pointing out uh, that these small nuclear reactors come from all these different areas uh, that we've advanced technology in, aircraft manufacturers, submarine construction, um, software. And because of criticism I often hear about small nuclear reactors are goes something like this, um, you know. Oh, uh, people that are pro uh, uh, small nuclear reactors need to learn from the past uh, mistake uh, mistakes and look at the failures of nuclear. And the technology isn't even that new; it's just the same technology from decades ago. Yada yada yada. So, yeah, in some ways, the technology isn't new. That's like saying, you know, the the technology of the car came from Henry Ford, but the, the Model T and the Tesla are completely different. You, the technology advancements that have occurred uh, may, you know, at a fundamental level, sorry, the technology they're based on a fundamental level is the same. 
you know, you're still, but there's been these incremental advancements we've made over the last 50 years are not insignificant. And uh, that's what this Robert Adams points out in his writings. And I believe him. I do. I I, I think so when he's talking about uh, these reactors being a, a useful tool for energy production, I, uh, I take them seriously and I and I uh, um, would uh, would say that if anybody is interested in getting his uh, getting a perspective on on these reactors listen you know go read up on some of the thoughts of Rob, Rob Adams um, what are your thoughts on uh, these small reactors I think yeah th- there's a lot of uh, promise that they show and I think what he says that, they're part of the solution is important too when uh, you consider that there's a big push from um, maybe mainstream media from a lot of uh, more pop culture sources that you know wind solar those are the answers but we have to be a bit more realistic and pragmatic and realize that there's no one silver bullet no one magic approach to solve everybody's energy demands and we have to be and, and um energy dem- yeah i mean energy demands energy needs right 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 yeah uh and um and we have to make sure that the the energy that we we provide for people based on their uh area factors in that ge- geography and makes use of what's in their surroundings maybe they have a warmer climate with less cloud cover and you can get away with more uh, solar maybe they have uh, access to geothermal and you can uh, supplement some of your heating through that maybe you have uh, some some tunnels of uh, lots of wind and you can uh, access that and uh, or maybe you have a coast and you can access the the uh, tidal energy, you know? So it's just to say that there's so many different ways of going about this energy problem. And um, I think um, the small modular reactors are definitely a part of that solution. And they'll definitely help with communities that are in remote areas because that's one of the issues right now is getting fuel to these remote areas. It's super expensive. It's, t- it's time consuming. And if you can have these... Um, a a large supply of energy that's shipped in via these small modular nuclear reactors and it's kept there for a a prolonged period of time and it doesn't have to be subbed out, then that could be a huge bonus um, in terms of cost savings, maintenance, all all these types of benefits. So I think there's there's a lot of promise and it's true that there's, uh, you can't, it's so lazy for somebody to just say, oh, you should just learn from the past. Like, it's just such a a cop-out answer or criticism where it's like, okay, you need to actually look deeper into this and try to understand how what the improvements have been made, what were the issues in the past, uh, have they been addressed? Because it's it's just so much more complicated than just saying something like, oh, oh learn from the past. Oh, like it's I, just I, I, labeling something and then it's just intellectually just simple-minded BS. Oh, I mean, I... I heard that or read that headline and that argument and I was like, so you're saying if something has failed in the past, it will fail in the future or we can't make it better? Like it is such a flawed way of looking at it. Yeah, um, airplanes failed until they didn't. Until they didn't. Uh, yeah. you know. If, if uh, we had everybody thinking like that 
person, then we would never have innovation. We would never have the creation of something that maybe initially failed, like an airplane. People would be like, hey, man, we've been trying to do this for uh, thousands of years. Uh, you're not the first. Plenty of people smarter than you have come and done it. And, but meanwhile, you know, the, the people, the Wright brothers, they still like, nah, man, we're still going to do this thing. And they eventually have uh, their invention has revolutionized the world as we know it so it's again it's just a very lazy way of thinking and hopefully if you're listening to this podcast we're helping and also for ourselves as well because i think this is something that is just natural to people and requires constant diligent mindful exercise so that you uh, you yourself um we ourselves avoid this type of thinking of just being lazy labeling this and that i catch myself doing it sometimes too so yeah it's not to say we're, we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination uh, but one last thing uh we talked a lot that i want to just highlight is just again like the the power of nuclear and um this one fun fact that one uranium fuel pellet creates as much energy as one ton of coal 149 gallons of oil or 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas so one pellet um yeah it's just very very powerful so again it's, it's to me it's it's an amazing representation of the achievement of the human mind of the human uh community as well not just of the human mind on an individual level but the human mind on a community level as well because it wasn't just the invention or the discovery of these little small things that um that that were important but it was also the amalgamation of all those small discoveries uh, that that pertain to quantum physics and uh, electron spin and and this and that and how all these small discoveries uh, that were each individually uh, important and ingenious in their own right but then also how the community brought them all together to generate something even more uh, astounding being the nuclear energy and then beyond that nuclear bombs for negative reasons but whatever right <laughs> yeah 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 it is uh, it is incredible it really is um i think this is the type of thing that draws a lot of people into physics and understanding uh the under trying to understand the world through the lens of physics um i mean Here's another thing that we just people probably know already, but I'll just lay it out there. It's like the sun is a giant fusion reactor and without the radiation that comes from the sun, there would be no life on earth. There's so much that relies on the the radiation from the sun. Um, it is the 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 uh, particles from the sun that responsible for the aurora borealis the northern lights there's you know the world is an incredible place you know <laughs> and uh uh it's just foolish for us to um uh and 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 think how dangerous the sun is the sun is <laughs> you know there's no way people can get to a certain close like how close you can get to the sun before you know that but it it's it's finding that balance it's finding that right um scale the right distance the right safety precautions to make 
the best out of under uh, of our technology and i mean our technology is what humans at any given point uh understand they can do with their physical world um based on years of research and findings from many many talented uh incredible people across the uh, the world so um yeah yeah i or, you know, I just say to anybody, it's just if you are critical and still of the opinion that nuclear is something we need to never approach again, it's it's uh, the destroyer of world in the sense that it created the nuclear bomb. It's all these negative things and then that we should be, you know, reducing its uh, presence on the planet. I say really, really think about that position you have Um because I believe it's flawed. Yeah, and as we've outlined throughout this podcast, there's uh, countless benefits to nuclear just in terms of the reduced carbon output, if you care about that, uh, safety in terms of the deaths per gigawatt hour uh, generated. And um, yeah, there's just a lot of misconception associated with nuclear. Hopefully, we're able to address some of those things during this podcast. Hopefully, we were able to answer some questions maybe you guys had. Please find more episodes on firstprinciplespodcast.com. If you like this episode, please go to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever. Give us a like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Give us a follow and share with your friends that might also appreciate some of this information as well. As always, his first principles break down from the ground up. Peace. Peace out, guys.